All right, everybody, this episode has received some attention regarding the topic of discussion, which can be a really difficult topic to address, which was one of the words that's used a lot now in the realm of disabilities is eugenics. And obviously, to anybody that recognizes what eugenics are, it is horrifying. That is never something myself or any guests I've ever had would support, endorse, encourage in any single way. So I I thought it might be useful to discuss the implications of what you're about to hear because that topic is in uh, somewhat of a different way brought up. The initial reasoning for bringing up this topic was a current phenomenon going on right now in, I believe, Norway, where the population of people with Down syndrome is less than 1%. The reasoning for the population being of of disabled individuals being so low is genetic testing. So more and more mothers throughout their pregnancy have access to genetic testing, are going through with genetic testing, and are able to see if their baby has Down syndrome. And they are aborting children that do test as having Down syndrome. This being said, I can't speak for any other countries. It certainly isn't the case for America, but it's almost unfathomable to imagine a country where there would be nobody with Down syndrome or there would be nobody with disabilities or mental illness is a little bit different because it's not a genetic condition. But it's very difficult to imagine what a society would look like without these people. Now, there there were certain concerns brought up that because I opened the floor to this topic, and the manner in which it's discussed, which you will hear again in a little bit, there were concerns related to my believing that people with disabilities didn't contribute to society or that in some way it was insinuated that I encouraged this form of um, ridding society of people with disabilities. I would like to make very, very, very clear, which I hope comes across when you listen to the conversation, at least the first part of the conversation, I would never endorse any any ideology or reasoning related to ridding society of any type of person, let alone someone with a disability or a mental illness. I wouldn't have gone into this field had I not been passionate about helping these people better understand themselves and better understand their place and attain a higher quality of life. And the quality of life discussion did get brought up because there are people with severe disabilities and severe illnesses that live very very, very challenging lives and very painful, whether that be physically or emotionally, very painful lives. And um, I saw a study posted by the New York Post recently where there's doctors in in the Netherlands that are euthanizing people with autism and intellectual disabilities because they have nowhere for them to go. They've been so heavily afflicted by their condition that their quality of life is incredibly low. Um, It puts their families in an awful position. And is it hard to hear? Of course. It is horrifying to imagine that something very similar to Nazism, which was brought up in the episode, it's it's horrifying to, to believe that there are others out there that would believe that that would benefit society in any way. And I'm wondering if part of the concern was the comparison to to Nazism. Now, 
again, I want to make something very clear. Bringing up something in a hypothetical format um, in some form of a thought experiment, which a thought experiment, by the way, is a hypothetical situation, a theory, a question where its purpose is to dissect, tease apart, and lay out all of the consequences of the specific thought experiment. So for this specific thought experiment, when we were talking about aborting all babies with Down syndrome, and now it's not hypothetical, it's already happening in in Norway and other parts of Europe, and obviously the Netherlands is a different story too, what are the implications of that? And for those that only listen to the the short segment of this episode, it's we didn't hear any part about me and my guests stating the joy and the different perspective and the unconditional love and insight that these people do bring to, to society and that society would never fare better um, without their contribution to it. Another thing that was mentioned was their contribution to society and to be realistic about tax dollars and insurance billing and funding for these populations that do need immense help and oftentimes around the clock care. Uh, I would be remiss to have these sorts of conversation without bringing those things to light. It is undoubtedly a a major drain for um, financially and emotionally and mentally for families and for the patients themselves. So that's something awful that we need to consider. And I want to encourage listeners or just anybody that's a practitioner or a human being that cares about other human beings to, to, to not shy away from these sorts of conversations just because they're very, they can be difficult to hear. So I can see where the conversation itself, if it was only the transcript was read and you didn't hear my tone of voice or my guest tone of voice, it could very easily be misinterpreted as us um, encouraging something like this. But there's a difference between addressing something because we think that it's important to address versus being in full support of it. Before I let you get to the episode, I wanted to bring up the example. Um, someone I really look up to is Daryl Davis, who's a jazz music- musician, and he's known for his work. Um, he is an African-American male, and he spoke face-to-face and had face-to-face therapy sessions with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, if, if we apply the same logic to the, the concerns related to this episode, um, People might say that Daryl supported white supremacy just because he listened to their point of view without correcting them and he opened the door to these relationships with these people, which obviously wasn't the case at all. He was just brave and courageous enough to hear another person's perspective, fully understand where they might be coming from, and try to develop some sort of meaningful relationship or middle ground regardless of what he heard. And that's what the overall aim of this podcast is. So if there are any further concerns, if there are any questions, things that um, just rubbed you the wrong way, 
please, please, please reach out to me directly. Feel free to email me theangrybehavioranalyst at gmail.com. Again, that is theangrybehavioranalyst at gmail.com. I will answer everything as quickly as I possibly could. And I will be open to any and all criticism and feedback that you have. So that being said, I hope you enjoy today's show. He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, welcome back to Honestly Unorthodox. Back by popular demand, I have my panelists here, Adam from Florida. What's up? And I have Kate from Massachusetts. Hello. Guys, along with our panelists, we have a spectacular guest, the host of Cylinder Radio Podcast, high school civics teacher in Los Angeles, California, Will Roosh. Welcome to the pod. Oh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, this is, I love just like kind of chopping it up, talking about whatever's going on in the in the news and the society and all that kind of stuff. So this is, this is fun. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, you cover all of the topics on social media. You've grown pretty immensely in, in a very short time from what I can see. Yeah, well, I've been doing it for like five years. It was kind of a slow grind and I didn't, I, it was all like very like organic. Like I get messages like, you want to grow your Instagram? I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> but in the last yeah, in the last like week or so, I'd say like the last 10 days, it's grown by like almost 10,000 people, which is crazy. But wow. I've, I, I kind of figured out what it is. You just have to like... Uh, dump on Biden pretty much. <laughs> it's so it interesting. Bad, that's what it takes. Yeah. And I don't want to lean into that. Like, I'm not like, I, I don't want to, but like, it's just, it's just, it's easy to, the formula is really easy. The more divisive you get and the more I feel found that um, conservative on like the, you know, left, right kind of matrix of, uh, of the political spectrum, the conservatives tend to be more vocal and supportive and stuff on social media. I think because they align with like the mainstream media doesn't have their back. So they go on to social media and they're like, all right, here's where we can really feel represented. So I think that's what it is. Yeah. Is that also a reason why you think, I guess, by the portrayal, I guess, of liberals in the media, is that also on the contrast to that, the same reason why you think liberals may report that social media is uh, a more negative experience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, well, it also is negative. That's the, that's the unfortunate thing is I like that, that like the accounts growing, get more people, more eyes on what I'm doing and get more challenges to kind of what I'm doing. But yeah. it's, there's a lot of ugliness. Like when I yeah. make a video that goes like whatever viral gets like, you know, 200, 500,000 views or something. It's really terrible. Like in the comment section, it's, it's a lot of like childish name calling. It's a lot of just like some of it's thrown at me, but a lot of it's thrown at each other and people in general. It's like personal attacks and stuff. And like, I don't, I don't dig that. So I, I understand why people, um, especially the left, it's, if they're like more like soft-hearted people, you know, go on the internet, express their opinions, and then just get like, just smashed by a bunch of people just calling them names yeah. and making fun of them and saying like, you're miserable or whatever it is. It's like, ugh, mm-hmm. what a, it's really ugly. I don't, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. On both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. So we uh, we had a little bit of a slippery slope issue before you logged on here. And we thought, you know what, let's just start this podcast with a bang and ask Will a a very um, uncomfortable question. Okay. (laughs) Uh We 
we were talking about disabilities, contribution to society, how we would measure someone's contribution to society. So is it their ability to work? Is it measured differently? And guys, should I just come out and, and say it the way we said it? Or should I try to word this? Inspired, not just fire away. Do you want me to say it being that I posed the question so I can take the blame if it comes back? Oh, I'm fine with blame. Right, uh, ahead, well, should we, should we basically either kill disabled people since they don't um, contribute by the by the standard of work? Should we send them away somewhere? How do we go about an issue like that? Okay, it is interesting. So I um I taught uh, in like East LA, like a really tough neighborhood for a couple of years, and then I moved to a a modern Orthodox. Jewish high school in like near Beverly Hills, very like night and day difference. And it's a, it's an amazing school. I'm still there. It's a, it's a, they allow me to do all the stuff that I do and it's a great place. But very early on, I had a very conservative student um, bring up in my government class, this very question. And he said something along the lines of like, you know, the people that aren't contributing, the people that are just taking the takers from society, why don't we just eliminate them? Like, wouldn't that be better economically? Wouldn't that make sense? from like a practical standpoint. And I was just like, whoa, like, yeah, from a practical standpoint, yeah, that was tried guys. I was telling it to like a, like a, a Jew- Orthodox Jewish, like kids with the, right. the little hats on. I was like, this was tried. You might've heard of a person that did that. Yeah. Like the, I mean, and I say this like really openly is like, eh, to pull this one out is like, um, like Nazism from a practical standpoint makes a lot of sense, except for the racial purity stuff. Because if you see, you know, Albert Einstein as a non-contributor, if you see him as a weak link, then that that's where it gets really flawed with like the racial purity stuff is obviously like pseudoscientific and, and terrible, but start off with that very idea of like the strong survive. So let's get rid of the weak. And practically that makes sense. Right. But in like if, if you if you're thinking just in terms of like what will have us be strong and thrive and things like that but when you break that down into a reality it's the most horrifying idea ever i mean that's that's the the concept of, of getting rid of the weak is then it even comes down to then again how do you define weak and that's where they get into like racial stuff and things like that but mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's why i think that not everything can be can be quantified quantified like the same way you know like like what's your contribution because there could be someone who i mean i've i've been in situations where i'm like walking on the street and i'm feeling really down and down and out like what's going on and then i talk to a homeless guy who's like you know hey you know what i got i got uh, a shirt on my back and i got some food this morning and uh and i'm doing okay and you know life is pretty good i'm like oh wow yeah maybe it's life is pretty good yeah, yeah right. how do you like i can quant- how do you quantify that like i got good perspective from this person so it's very difficult to say what is your contribution and then whatever metric you're going to use to try and measure that is going to be flawed so i i like i think think that i that question should be allowed to be posed sure because then we can like actually work it out as opposed to people who aren't thinking through this stuff just it just makes like sense on its on its um on its and, head like that and kind of like what we do is as bcbas is we work with um generally not the vocal um, autism community. They're not the ones that are posting in terms of neurodiversity and they're the ones that are hurting themselves or hurting other people and they're not able to participate in polite society. So we come in and we're trying to teach them skills to foster independence and reduce those problem behaviors so they can be um, a contributing part in some aspect to society. And it the effort required to bring a person 
from my standpoint as a, as a case manager or BCBA up to the level where they're going to be able to at least participate in school to the level of their peers is so immense. And yet we have people in the neurodiversity movement that are saying we need to accept these people as they are. So it, it puts someone like me in this quandary of, well, if we accept them where they're at, then they're, we're accepting that they're not going to be able to contribute. And mm -hmm. if that's all that we're doing, then we're also discounting the portion of the population that is going to benefit from helping them learn, such as myself. Like I'm able to have, you know, a house and kids and I'm able to teach other people and impact other lives through, you know, purchasing things and working with people and learning and then teaching other people purely because I'm working with these people that require this amount of effort. And if I stop teaching them, all of the other stuff goes away also, unless I pivot and do something completely different. Yeah. So it's like, yes, like you said, your homeless example, that person may not be contributing to society, but they are purely in the fact that they're existing and being taught contributing in that and by their presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a, a woman on my podcast named Mindy Churchill who um, had ad adopted kids with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. She had a kid with Down syndrome and then she adopted a kid with Down syndrome. She also has two um, uh, uh, autistic kids that are pretty severe. And I think one of them is non-vocal and stuff like that. And she just talks about like how rewarding it is, how it's like, it's fun. Like they're fun. They're wild. It's like Absolutely. a crazy fun life. And she's like, that gets forgotten. And we got into what's happening. in I believe it's Norway where they say that they've like eradicated down syndrome just from oh. early testing and just like it was widespread abortion. Mm. Right. And it's like, like, what are you missing from a society that doesn't have down syndrome people in it? And I think that's a, that's an important question. It's hard to like measure, but there's right. something Right. Yeah. A hundred percent something. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. People with, with that I work with and I work with, um, they are like the purest expression of emotion. You'll never see a happier person, you'll never see a sadder person, you never see a more frightened person, but they're purest examples of emotion. And when you work to get someone to accomplish something that another person of a similar age takes for granted because it comes natural to them, the immense feeling of pride that you have for that person is unparalleled. Yeah. Is that, is that a contribution then? Is, is that, do they offer a different perspective yeah. then on life that maybe people who are neurotypical or whatever you want to call it can't understand? I mean, would that technically be something that's an un, unquantifiable contribution then? It could be argued. Yeah. 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 I think that's, yeah, that's really important. And so like that's that that thing over Einstein again, like I think is his office at Princeton, like not everything that counts can be counted. Yeah. But that's that's yeah, that's an interesting topic. And that and, that, and you've yeah. talked a lot in your reels about nuance and you know, in the middle and stuff like that. And a polarizing question might be a polarizing question, but when you get down to the nuance, like you can learn learn a lot from it. So like you're saying, practically people that don't contribute, we should do something with them or put them somewhere. Or but what is contribution? Is contribution right. only monetarily? Is contribution only um, emotionally? So, saying that people don't contribute monetarily, it doesn't mean they don't contribute in another way. And therefore, by that definition, I can't just put them on an island somewhere or kill them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, con contribute like through like what tax revenue? Like, yeah, it's like yeah. How do you even measure like creating inventions? Like, you can create an invention that's terrible for people. There's a lot of things that you could do mm -hmm. that you appear to be a contributor. Someone with a big house and stuff like that. Whatever you might, you might pick as your metric is like, you know, how do you, how do you measure that they're doing more good than, than evil in the world? Like yeah. that's, it's all really, really tricky. That's why I think the reason I lean into so much, like let's flush out the nuance and stuff is because 
this isn't sorted out really like it's, it hasn't been figured out so let's just like round our edges a little bit and be a little humble and be like all right well let's figure this out like let's come up with some good metrics for how to measure this kind of stuff and i don't think it's been done that well yet i don't think so either because there's so much sensitivity and i'm not even saying that in a way that's judgmental um there's there's always going to be sensitivity around issues that are uncomfortable how many human people with a with a with a pulse and a compassion of the slightest degree want to talk about the possibility of killing someone because of a disability um so issues like that i think that the their uh, their proneness to becoming so uh, divisive is is a reason why these things haven't been sorted. And we think that we're doing ourselves a favor by by just refusing to speak about them, which I find to be really interesting, too. Yeah, like you can't talk like even this conversation, like you we were hesitant to go into it, which I, I understand. So am I like, but people are so like, how dare you even suggest this question? You know, Adam, are you right. even asking this question when you're working with these people? How dare you? It's like, right. Yeah. Like, like you don't know, you haven't thought about this. So mm-hmm. what you're judging me for thinking about it, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let's not do that. Mm-hmm. So, Will, I want to rewind a little bit. You said you're at mm-hmm. a private Jewish, Jewish mm-hmm. high school. Yeah. And you said that the school allows you to do these things. So walk yeah. me through the exchange between yourself and a school. Did you have to receive permission to continue to do these things publicly or I didn't know <laughs> like here's here's also something I tell my high school students is like I I'm bad at a lot of things but I'm good at being a classroom teacher and I I've done it I've been doing it for a long time so I have a, com- a confidence I'm in a city too so there's lots of options I'm confident that if if the school doesn't align with what I'm doing they don't like what I'm doing that I will find another job sure, so sure. it gives me a lot of freedom and a lot of confidence like all right I'm just gonna do this so what happened was I was talking about the culture wars. I was talking about all this kind of stuff, um, viewpoint diversity in my classroom. My wife is a small business owner and she markets a lot on social media. And she was like, why don't you bring your classroom online and start a social media account? I wasn't on social media. I was like, ugh, like I got talking to my phone. I feel, <laughs> I feel like, ugh. But as soon as I framed it as it's my classroom, then I was like, okay, I'll, I'll talk in my phone, even though it makes me feel like a douchebag, whatever. And, uh, and, uh, and so I started doing that. And then what happened was I, I addressed topics on like trans issues and racial issues and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I had a, a Instagram live go like kind of viral where I was talking to three critical race theory teachers. I don't know if you saw I that. Saw it's, it. on YouTube. it's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> oh, is that the intent over impact? Really? Yeah. yeah. I got a um, live. And yeah. Like that was one, but like that one got, I got like, you know, maybe a half a dozen letters like sent to my school and I didn't talk about the school name. They must've just like Googled me. They sent like emails um, to the school, but I've gotten others since then prior to then too. Just like you employ a racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, whatever they want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I got, a, I got messages and it was like, Hey, we're getting these, these emails coming in about you. And I was like, all right, well, let's see it. Maybe I'll get fired, whatever. Um, and instead they were like, look, these are anonymous for the most part. This is nonsense. The families like you, the students like you, we like you, you show up to work on time, you do a good job. So they just were like, we just want you to know about it, but doing the garbage. Wow. And they come in kind of like from time to time, they, they roll in someone just like outraged and something like that. And then uh, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk to me about it. Everyone that's outraged and thinks I'm terrible. I invite them to an Instagram live. I'm like, let's right flushes out um so my school supports me but that is very rare very rare yeah. yeah 
I have a lot of friends in, in education, obviously, and I have a lot of, I've, I've like built a network of other teachers around the country. And what something that I get from a lot of teachers is thank you for speaking out because I can't. And because I can, uh, this, is, this is actually a weird thing. Kayla It's like, I have a, I get, I don't get um, poison Ivy. Like I could just take it and rub it on my face. I don't get it. It's weird. My dad you doesn't get so it. so lucky. I yeah. am highly allergic to poison ivy. Are you? Oh, that's yeah. it's terrible, right? It's, it's your terrible. privilege. The poison ivy privilege. So I, I have it. So when I was a kid and the football would go in the poison ivy, they'd be like, all right, Roosh, go in there, get it. <laughs> and I could go in and get it because it didn't affect me. And that's the way I see it with the stuff where I talk about the education is like, I can kind of, I'm kind of immune where a lot of other teachers will lose their job. If I was still in public school, I 100% would have lost my job. Like I'm just in a situation that is kind of insular and, and bubbled out. And it's also a population that really values education and really values. There's something like modern Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish kind of culture. That's like, let's talk about it all. Absolutely. Like, rabbis are arguing back and forth about like yeah. this one word in the Torah and all this kind of stuff. But, like it's all on the table. Leave no stone unturned when it comes to education. So I don't I don't know how I got there. I'm not Jewish. Like I, I'm not part of that community, but I found a job there. And I think it's been a big um, blessing for me to be able to do what I do. That is very lucky, especially considering you live in California. I've never been to California. I hear a lot from from colleagues and friends of mine about the uh, the atmosphere in California. I have a funny stereotype that I want to run by you about California. Um, it is the largest outdoor insane asylum in the country. That's funny. Uh, it's it's a it's a lot of transplants. You know, like I'm from Pennsylvania yeah. originally. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, like. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's weird. Cause it's a lot of people that are, um, I don't like part of it is like the weather's always nice. Like yeah. that kind of, that's like a, it's like a cliche thing, but part of that is you don't have to deal with the, the misery of when it's six degrees outside and your car's frozen over or something yeah. like that. Just like it gets you a little bit more comfortable. And I think yeah. you can kind of use this as a metaphor for looking at society where we're kind of very comfortable. We have air conditioning now and all of our cars have air conditioning and all of our houses and we get access to whatever song you want to listen to. We can just open it up on our phone and that comfort kind of makes you a little delusional. I think it makes you like not have like a regular sense of life. And I think that there's an element of California that's that's like that, especially like Southern California, um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. You go in the middle, like Lancaster or something like that. It's 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 a lot of farms, a lot of like, you know, like MAGA trucks and stuff like that, too. Yeah. But in the hubs of like Los Angeles, I think it's a lot of like insulated people, especially in the West Side, very wealthy, very comfortable lives. um, And they're very much in a bubble. It's like a population density thing. It's like where all the people are like shoved together in millions and millions of people. And then you go to the outskirts because California is such a huge, expansive landmass that you've got all sorts of different people, but they're not really interacting in that regard in terms of like geography. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a super segregated. Like I grew up like an hour and a half outside of New York. And the thing about being like on the subway is you'll have like a hedge fund manager next to a homeless guy with a jar of pee, you know, next to like a school teacher, yeah. next to like some teenager, next to like some six-year-old who's riding the subway by himself and they don't know why. And they're all kind of interacting. It's this weird kind of like tension of like everyone's kind of just like doing their own thing. In LA, it's not. I taught, when I taught in East LA, I had kids that were, they live in Los Angeles. And they were 17 years old and never been to the beach. Wow. Crazy. Right. And now crazy. I, yeah, now I teach like the West side and there are kids who are 17 years old and have never been to like the barrio, never been to the hood, never been to like a housing project. 
So sure. they they might like just pass each other with the windows up. They don't interact. It's a very segregated um, city and state. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. Wow, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. while we're on the topic of some of the kids that you teach, some of the kids you've worked with over the years, I'm I'm interested in about your perception of Gen Z in comparison to how the media portrays Gen Z. Yeah, um, man, it's so it's it's interesting. So there's always that element of like rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of now the way to be a little bit more punk rock is to be like uh, conservative with your your hair combed and stuff like that. <laughs> like there is an element of like you really want to ruffle the feathers, especially like out here. Sure. You know, is like that's what you do. You talk mm-hmm. about how like you're gonna wait to have sex till you're married, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so there is that like element um of it but uh the 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 um lack of grit is what i see and i don't think it's just in my school because i do talk to um you know other uh teachers and teenagers and stuff like that that are like you know in my paradigm and uh there is a lack of like grit like you've been knocked down and you're gonna get back up yeah uh, that kind of stuff and i've talked to like employers and stuff uh, that, that are hiring and they say the same thing uh there is that problem of of dealing with hardship and mm-hmm. so that's what i think is fusing a lot of this what you guys see which is like the anxiety depression all that kind of stuff constantly at them is if you you're going to be scared of everything if you haven't been exposed to very much or you're you know right. something along those lines i don't know that's something you could probably speak on better than i could a thousand percent kate you you work with some people that fall into the the lack of grit category. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? I sure do. I'm just I'm just curious, Will, if you have any idea of what where you think that comes from. Um what change that is like causing that. Like I have a lot of um employees that are direct staff that um yeah they're they're very anxious and um they you know they meet adversity for a minute and it's like their whole world is going to come crashing down and they're like, they're ready to quit or they're ready to go home or any opportunity to not be at work is, is always what they would, would choose. That would be their, their go-to. So I just, I'm, I'm wondering what, what, what causes that? Yeah. There's so many factors. I thought I heard like, I think it was Tim Dillon was talking, like they made a joke about how like Gen Z or whatever, they're like, they have these mental, what was it like mental health days? Is calling yeah. sick for like mental health days. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't work today. And I couldn't even begin to tell you when I could be back. Like, like, how is that acceptable? I think that yeah. it's a maybe an overcorrection of of you know generations of like your feelings don't matter. So get over it. And then it's like it's like an overcorrection of that. I think is part of it. I think there's also like growing up, we had chores to do. We had to, you right. know, we had like like things that needed to get done, and now the technology has taken, has robbed us of some of that, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, we've had dishwashers, but like the, the metaphor of like, you used to have to scrub dishes and now you just put it in a dishwasher. And so you don't have as many, I've, I didn't, I mean, I had a job. I'm sure we had jobs in high school. You guys had jobs in high school. Absolutely. My students don't have jobs. Even when I was teaching public school, very few had jobs, like just like working at Burger King or whatever, working at the car wash. So you don't learn that kind of stuff. And then kids are getting out of college and they've never had a real job. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know, maybe it's like the overcorrection and then, and then um, parlayed with the technology and, and kind of the taking away the, 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 
you know, elbow grease that goes into, you know, daily life. I don't know. What do you think? Well, maybe it's just where I live, but I, it kind of goes along with your uh, like conservatism being the new kind of counterculture as we're seeing a big swing towards like homesteading and like people making their sourdough bread and having their kids feed chickens. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if we're gonna, the pendulum's gonna swing and overcorrect kind of in the, the opposite direction. Uh, it'd be interesting to see. We'll, we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I guess it comes out like, well, it, it depends on how bad, you know, society has like a, not collapse, but like a, a falter. Like it's, that's, gonna happen at some Coming. point like yeah i mean i think so you know unemployment or you know, some sort of banking collapse or some you know who knows there could be a lot of things that are going on um and then people are going to realize just how um uh like non-capable uncapable they are of like just rudimentary things you know i talk to my students like they don't know how to not just like drive a stick shift car, but they don't know how to change a tire. They don't know how to change a fuse. They don't know if their lights go out in their house, what to do. They don't know if they have a leaky pipe, what to do. They don't know any of that stuff. And right. uh, and now at this population that I teach, which is fairly wealthy, but like their parents don't know that stuff either. Mm -hmm. right? So you're always relying on someone else to do these things for you. And the fact that they, they're not worried about that is is surprising to me. I think that's probably from from a standpoint of like in the future, that's the thing that worries me the most is if you're constantly waiting around for someone else to fix whatever problem you have yeah. and mm -hmm. any problem that comes about, you're going to wait for some of the some of the person to fix it. When if you just go through and some adversity or yeah. like you're talking about, like persevere with that grit, you'll probably be able to fix it yourself and then not have to wait the next time it comes around. So it's like, all right, I got a leaky faucet. The plumber's busy because no one knows how to fix faucets for two weeks. Am I just going to sit there and let it be leaky for two weeks? Or am I going to learn how to fix it? Like you, yeah. it'd be better for you to learn the skill to fix it. And yeah, it's going to suck. You might bloody your knuckles, but you'll learn that skill. So the next time when you got a leaky faucet, you can fix it in two minutes. And it's yeah. so easy now, like YouTube. I do oh a project. <laughs> yeah. I, I do a project. So my, my 12th grade civics class, the the first week of school, they choose um, a skill that they don't know how to do. And it's hard for them to even picture them being good at it, but mm -hmm. something they want to get good at. And they call it the process project. And then the whole year they work on it. So it could be something like running, uh, running a mile and getting that time down. It could be like a Rubik's cube. It could be juggling. It could be anything like that. That's quantifiable. And they work at it um, the whole year. And then at the end of the year, they make it. They made a documentary of their failures on the way to success. So it'd be like oh, walking on your hands, anything That's like awesome. that. Yeah, because it remind me of the Matrix, like in the Matrix, where she's like, "I want to learn how to fly a helicopter," and then her eyes just kind of flutter, and she can fly a helicopter. And I was like, "Guys, <laughs> kung fu." Yeah, right. Exactly. Like just like that. I was like, "You can't actually can learn how to drive a, a helicopter, guys. It just it doesn't work instantly, but." You could do it over the course of several months. Right. And once you realize that you can gain skills and things that you thought to be impossible, then it opens up your mind up to like, well, I learned how to play the trumpet, even though I didn't have a musical blow in my body. So I could probably learn how to pole vault too. I don't know. It's like, it's a skill that you just go through the universal steps of a skill. And in their, their documentary, they have to talk about what are those universal steps of like patience and, um, you know, just like regular schedules and, and, and the grit of failing and learn from your failures and documenting it and using YouTube or whatever it is. And I do that for that exact reason so that they can go, ah, it's impossible for me to ever know how to fix a tire. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's yeah. not. You learn how to juggle. You can learn how right. to fix a tire. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not like you're trying to go into an area that no one's been into before. Like you're yeah. the first person to ever change a tire. I wonder if someone right. figured out how to do it. Like there are 
millions of people that can change tires. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like in the coddling of the American mind. It's one of the first great untruths is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And the understanding that if there is difficulty or I fail along the way, God forbid I record it, let alone publicly share my failure with people because they will see that as something that just tears their identity to shreds. Yeah. Every kid is like, oh, it's so embarrassing. I don't want to play my video. It's embarrassing. I was like, they're all embarrassing. That's the point. Yeah, that's, that's kind the, of the point. That's the point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I shared mine. Mine was really embarrassing. It was bowling like, <laughs> a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was I, I hadn't bowled since, you know, I was a couple of years ago. So I was, you know, in my like late 30s. I hadn't bowled since I was like a, a teenager or something like that. And it was never like taken seriously. And I went on. Uh, my wife was having a, her company picnic par- uh, uh, Christmas party and I was bowling and I was terrible. I'm like a fairly athletic guy. Um. And I was, it was like gutter ball, gutter ball, two pins, gutter. And it was so embarrassing. It bothered me a lot. And so the next day, um, I like you know, set the kids up with a movie or something. I was like, honey, I'm going. I went to the bowling alley by myself and tried to, I was like on YouTube reading like little things. Like a, like a, like a nine-year-old, 11-year-old girl came over. She's like, hey, mister, you want some tips? I was like, yeah, get away. Oh, my God. I, like, I got no. this. Yeah. And then I talked to a guy who was there and like people were just, it was super, super pride swallowing. But, um, guy was like, Hey, do you ever shoot bows and arrows or, or guns? I was like, yeah. He's like, um, what's like a key, what's a key phrase. And I was like, aim small, miss small. He's like, exactly. You aim small, miss small. He's like, see those little arrows on the, on the boards. I was like, yeah. He's like, roll at that. I'm tall. I'm six, three. So part of what I was doing was like okay. dropping the ball instead of rolling it. <laughs> and once I just made those little adjustments, then I, you know, I, I broke a hundred and then I was like, I got to do this until I can break a hundred and three consecutive games. And I did it. And it didn't, it took me like whatever, two or three, three trips to the bowling alley or something like that, but I got it. And it was, it was like something small, but like you said, like a lot of people can just bowl, but right. for me, it was like, it was hard. And then I figured it out and I was like, this is, was a really valuable activity. I'm going to show this to my class. I think all of us are around the same age. And I think growing up when there there was there were endless opportunities to be embarrassed by things we were terrible at. And there were endless opportunities to be judged by peers, but there wasn't the same degree of always feeling chronically updated and that our failures were being chronically broadcast to everybody. And I wonder if that plays a part in people are always watching me and the the social pressure is a little bit more um, stringent now than it was before. I wonder if that's a part of it. Yeah. Well, they're on social media like crazy, but they're, that's so catered. Like it's not just like duck face. It's like, I took, I took <laughs> yeah. 75 duck face pictures and, and, and filtered them. And now I'm picking out the, which, which one is the best to put on my social media. So it's like, it's all this stuff. Like, I have a friend, you guys might get this too. Like, I don't know. Like I've, I've ta- I have a friend who's a therapist. He said he gets a lot of um, clients who come in and like, man, everyone on my social media feed has their life. So together, they're so like with oh, it. And they're so it's like, what? Like, you, <laughs> like that's a, that's a catered thing. Like that's not yeah. real. That's not real life. You don't right. show your failures like that. Yeah. I so think- I think teenagers, especially. I find it sad that that people even believe that that's real life. Though. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, they and, do, and they're I convicted in believing that this is reality that that it really is just uh, this direct parallel to what people do in real life. I I could never imagine feeling that way when I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we had that thing where, like, you know, whatever the captain of the football team, or whatever, like, oh, he has it all together, you know, or the t- head cheerleader, you know, she's pretty and she's smart and all that kind of stuff, but. um, but that now everyone kind of puts forth all of that stuff and it's not 
accurate. And that's why I try to show vulnerability and things like that to my students. Like I, when I, if I like trip on a wire or something like that, or I, you know, I fumble something or I have a piece stain in my pants or something like that, just like really showing vulnerability to yeah. them. Uh, like I have um, a fear of public speaking and, but I don't you? have a fear of public speaking. I do like in front of like oh. adults. Okay. Yeah. But not, okay. not teenagers. And I was trying to figure out why that is. Cause it's not like the teenagers are less brutal. Like <laughs> they're terrible. They'll, right. They will <laughs> rip you apart, but yeah. they will respond better to vulnerability. What I found. So if I do something that's like really bad, I screw up really bad. And I, instead of just like trying to cover it up, I just own like, I'm really feeling insecure or whatever it is. They respond because they're super insecure themselves and they're super vulnerable all the time. They, they want to be vulnerable, but they're scared to do it. So when they see me show that vulnerability, they respond a lot better. And I think less judgmental about showing vulnerability than a lot of adults are. That's a really interesting. Yeah perception actually i don't know why i hadn't thought about it that way that i don't know if it's true but that's just what uh, my take yeah 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 i I mean just i try every time i have a goal for myself anytime i go to a conference and i'm really moved by a speaker i always try to go up and ask a question and even if i don't have a chance to ask a question i go up and try to talk to that person and almost every single time where i ask a question it's met afterwards with people like oh thank you so much for asking that question because they were thinking it, but they didn't have what they deemed to be the courage to get up in front yeah. of strangers and just ask a question and seem like you don't know something. But um, but for me, it's I'm pushing myself to do that. And I want this information more than I care about being embarrassed. Mm-hmm. So it's like I feel the drive to go and ask that question and get this information so I can then move on with my life. And I kind of have to like push down that, oh, they're all going to laugh at you. Adam Sandler voice in the back of my head. They're all going to laugh at you. That's and true. realize like and then. The more that people come and talk to me, like like you saying, oh, you know, you have this privilege of being able to speak and I wish we could do that same thing and have that responsibility. Now I kind of feel like I have a responsibility to ask the crazy questions that are in my head at conferences because who knows want, who knows who's behind me that wants to ask it, but isn't going to. And then they'll never have that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Curiosity is smart. And that's that's something that I, I just was talking to. My seniors had their last day yesterday. They're going on like a big senior trip. But like, I told them, you know, like, I'm guys, I'm not that someone said something like, oh, Mr. Reese, you're so smart. I'm like, that's I'm actually not like my brain's not that high horsepower. It's not what it is, is I'm just really curious. And I ask a lot of questions and it kind of looks like I'm smart because I'm asking a lot of questions. I'm getting those answers. And then before you know it, like, oh, okay, I'm like a guest on a podcast. And I guess I know what I'm talking about to some degree. Like, it really was just a very organic thing of just having the courage to, like you said, I'm like having the courage to ask the questions because my ego wasn't connected to being smart. I never thought of myself that way. It was always connected to trying to get to the right answers or trying to be smarter. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like I have the right answers ever. That's not why I like doing Q and A. It's not because like I have the answers, like I'm trying to work this stuff out. And that seems to resonate a lot with my students and, you know, to some degree with like people on social media and stuff. Yeah. The the way you you run your classroom and and the way that you teach, I would think that these would be really beneficial ways for all educators of of all levels in any setting to teach. And really, uh, a lot of universities, aside from, you know, Barry Weiss's University of Austin that we see are not like that. Peter Bogosian made a comment uh, recently that he believes the only way to reform the universities is to create new ones. And I'm interested how you see that, especially having seniors going into the university level. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, those, those are like, those are the people that really helped kind of shape my thinking when I was, you know, first starting out in these like culture wars, Peter Bergogi, I had in my podcast and he actually said like, if you're inserting yourself in the culture wars, be ready. I was like, right. yeah. um, uh -oh. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, I think that the problem is like, yeah, to, to, to switch around, you take like a, whatever UCLA, like out here or something to change that around. Cause I have a lot of students who went there and they said like their professors are really entrenched in their ideologies and stuff is I don't know how you break people out. You got to humble them and, and open them up to new ideas. But when you're in that position, you're the professor. It's very difficult to do that. So yeah. if you, the, the motto of these, of these, of these schools is about like truth and, and, you know, inquiry and stuff like that, but they're not living up to it. I don't know how to get, get through to them. I don't know. Cause they're not going to listen to me. I don't have the credentials to do that. So yeah, I don't, but my students go off and they, and then they come back and they tell me that like, they, you know, have like friction with their professors. Cause they'll just ask questions. And that's what I told my seniors also yesterday. It was like, uh, one of my students who's really awesome. He's going to Berkeley, mm -hmm. fairly conservative kid though. And he's just like, oh. I was like, just keep asking them questions. Yeah. Like, you don't, don't, don't call name call. Don't tell them they're wrong. Ask them like, what am I missing? I'm smart too. What am I missing that you seem to understand? You flush that out for me. I was like, just get really, really curious. And they'll, they'll get upset with you for being curious, but I think that's the right play. Um, we didn't need to get these college professors. The only way that Bogosian could be wrong maybe is like, if we get these college professors and we put them into situations where they have to defend their opinions, but we see that. I mean, he goes after Ibram Kendi a lot because yeah. Ibram Kendi, it's very frustrating. He won't defend his positions. No, never. So, so if they're not going to defend their positions and they're in this, these, positions of power where they're telling people what is in the world that's a real problem you yeah. need to break the, those those bubbles for those professors i think a thousand percent kate were you gonna say something i could have sworn i saw your hand no i was just thinking of uh you know the the classic i don't have time to teach you oh the response <laughs> to uh, you make a statement and then you say what do you mean by that and it's yeah. that's what google's for go google it <laughs> i i yeah, read do do the work. Yeah. <laughs> do the work. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. that is unbelievable to me. Um I, I tell Kate and Adam really frequently well about um my kids. I and Kate said that she like she thinks I have a niche group, and I might, I might have a very niche group, but you know, the second day we were talking about Hitler in the quad and trying to defend any degree in which we thought he was empathetic. And I mean, these were kids circling around little old me who is seemingly defending Hitler. And and I kind of kept my eye out for emails that might come through. Uh, you know, about any sort of disciplinary action. And they went and told their other professors about it. And their professor said, oh my God, you actually talk about these things, but th everyone was fine. Nobody was harmed. Yeah. So it like things like that, it almost makes me wonder if the concept of universities dying, is it overblown? Is it only happening in a small kind of these little scattered areas of the country? It's just hard for me to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm more familiar with what's happening in like the K through 12 realm. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's probably happening as some, you know, maybe it's more at like whatever Middlebury and, and maybe like the big Ivy league schools, the coastal schools and stuff like that. Maybe it's not happening as much. I got a question. I live yeah. in Florida and I moved from Connecticut. And one of the things that has come up recently in the news, specifically with K to 12 stuff is um, what's been deemed the don't say gay bill. Are you yeah. familiar with it? Uh, yeah, I actually read through it, so, you know, whatever, like a year ago now, but yeah. 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 Um, I would love to hear like your opinion on that as it relates to 
your stance on you kind of have to trust people at their word. Um, you yeah. wrote, you did a real line. It's like, and if we don't trust people at their word about what their intent is, then kind of everything falls apart after that. So the words that are written in that bill, I don't think convey what the message is being put out from one of the sides. So maybe could you opine on that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it's been a while, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, it was something along the lines of like, up until third grade, you're not supposed to talk about, um, like, 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 um, homosexual relationships or something like that. Or was it even, I don't even know if it's that explicit. It's not that explicit. So, uh, I think it's like third or fourth grade. There's no explicit curricular instruction regarding sex, um, gender, sexual orientation, anything right. associated with reproductive organs and things like that. And then at around fourth and fifth grade, those types of things can be starting to be discussed as is age appropriate. And the the more important thing is the from from a parent standpoint is they will inform the parents at the beginning of the year of the curriculum that their that their children will be involved in. And if you do not agree, you can opt your kid out. So the school district sends a, a curriculum, essentially a, a syllabus for your yeah. kindergartner. And I got one. Um, and this is what we're going to go by in terms of what we're going to teach this year for the curriculum if you're okay with it don't sign anything we're just going to participate as regular and if you don't like it then you can sign and we'll exclude them and have them do something else during that time yeah i mean that sounds very reasonable um it's i think it's it seems like it's like a again like a just a response to what ha what's happening here in california i mean it's i i it's it's interesting because i talk about this stuff on social media but i have friends that don't even know i have a social media and they tell me stories um one of them like just two one of them was like oh my son was in a, a second grade class and he had a a male teacher who just spent the class teaching him how to put on eyeliner and eyeshadow i was like what like yeah this is crazy that's kind of weird right i was like yeah it's kind of weird um and then um the another one was like a, a kid who she was in like fourth grade or something. And they read a book. Uh, I talked about it on my Instagram a little bit, but it was like a book about her uncle who was gay and died and then came back as like a ghost and then convinced the girl that she was actually born in the wrong body. And her daughter came home and was like, mommy, is it okay if I still want to be a girl? And she's like, what book are you reading? Like what's going on? So there was like that, that stuff is actually, these are people, right. not people who uh, message me online, which I get a lot of too, but these are just people who we're just talking about the frustrations that that's happening. So a way to that's inappropriate. I mean, it, it's, it's not just, it's just, it's, it's a complex con uh, uh, issue that you have to talk about with your kids. Sex is something very complex. I mean, it's like, right. you, you know, the birds and the bees and stuff like that. How do you want to do it? There's different religious kind of um, uh, leanings on, on that kind of stuff. Florida seems to be leaning just like trying to, to nip that in the bud. I, I think that there might be a problem with some of what they're doing. Um, I don't know if it's in Florida, but in some more conservative states where they're they're saying, like, if if there's curriculum that is offensive, then then, you know, that's like that's like that should be like, you know, taken down or something along those lines. So I forget exactly what the wording is, but it's something along those lines of like if there's if there's offensive speech that, that offends students then they, you know, need to have you know, some sort of repercussions for that. But like, that's a problem too. Like, like some books should be, you know, removed from like, that are absolutely age inappropriate. And I've seen it on Breitbart and stuff where they, so they read it out at these like teacher, um, at these like uh, school board meetings and stuff like that. But then there's other ones that are great. 
like that are that are great books, important books that are being removed too. So there's going to be some level of over overcompensation mm-hmm. um, with this. I think it's just you know the pendulum's going to swing a little bit, uh, but. I think that's part of what we're doing is trying to figure this out. Is like, what is the best way? I think that labeling something like the don't say gay thing though. I think that that's a problem because you're labeling it inaccurately. And I don't right. like that with anything. I don't like labeling, you know, Abram Kendi as anti-racist either. Like, right. I just think that we have to be very careful. So we have common language. If we don't have a common language, we're going to have a lot of misunderstanding. So let's have a common language here and let's sort this thing out together and let's actually have like like shoulder to shoulder moving forward with the same agenda of how do we do good education so i don't know if that answered your question but it's it it does and that's kind of where i'm in line with this also is that a lot of the pushback that i'm hearing from people that are in the state and not in the state is well what happens if and they give you a scenario and one of the common ones that i'm hearing is all right let's say you're a homosexual third grade teacher and you say i just got back from a vacation with my husband am i then teaching the gay agenda and am i going to be fired and i think everyone i don't want to say everyone it's a little hyperbolic but i think a vast majority of people in today's culture would say no one should be fired for being homosexual right so if that is a possibility absolutely but that is not what's being discussed this is specific curriculum about any sexual orientation. It'd be the same thing as if I'm like, you know what? I'm going to teach you about marriage, heterosexual marriage today from the Christian viewpoint at my public school in Hillsborough County. That's also inappropriate. So like, yeah. that is that is not something that should be pushed in terms of an agenda. And But they're discounting that because they're, they're like you're saying, they're kind of polarizing, they're being disingenuous in terms of how they're portraying their um, vitriol, not, maybe not vitriol, maybe that's not the right word, but their um, disagreement with this bill. That's that Martin, that Martin Bailey rhetorical device mm-hmm. where you, you dangle something like you're not allowed to say that you went on vacation with your husband. And then right. what the, and then it's over here. It's like, like, you know, you were born in the wrong body. It's like, well, which one, you know, which one Because you like playing with monster trucks? Like right. that's, that's that switcheroo that I think happens. It's like, it's like straw man arguments about like, no one's saying that you can't say, you know, that someone goes, who's that in your picture? Oh, that's my, you know, that's my wife or my husband or something like that. That's, and that's it. Right. You know, that's not what we're talking about, but that's the one that gets held up as mm-hmm. like the issue. Mm-hmm. More convenient yeah. to, uh, to put it out that way. If saying you have a husband does not mean you're pushing some sort of agenda that everyone should have husbands regardless of your right. yeah. Yeah, proclivities. Yeah. But it, it does get tricky. Actually, it does get tricky though. If, cause if a kid says like, Oh wait, you can marry someone who's the same, you know, gender as you. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make, you can marry someone the same gender as you. It's like, Oh, okay. So I can fall in love with someone with the same gender. It's like, yeah, you can't like that get does get tricky. It yeah. does. I mean, it's true. Like we have, you know, like friends who are gay and they come over with their, but like my kids who are eight, six, and then one and a half, like, like, my eight-year-old we're now we're just kind of like dancing with that, but it's, I don't know. I do want to also structure it in a way of like, this is, this is like as conservative in me is like, you know, this is like not the, the, the norm. I don't know. I mean, I, like, so we say like, yeah, well, they're, they're, that's their friend or their roommate. And then like, it'll ease into it, you know? And I ask him like, even just like in conversation, like, you know, and like, uh, Oh, you know, I forget how it would come up, but something along the lines of like, you know, can you marry? What do you think? Can you marry another boy? And they're like, no. And they start laughing and stuff like that. I was like, all right, well, and like they're going to understand it later. I just I wonder 
when kids are little and like developmental, you guys probably know this better than I do. Like the, the developmentally, you have to understand up from down when you're a little kid, like what yeah. is this reality? I don't know anything. So yeah, right. you can really muddle that up with like, with trans stuff, with, with homosexuals, like it's going to get, it's going to get muddled. Cause you, we're all like confused by the reality too, but sure. we have at least a base to go on. And I think giving them that base is not bigoted. It's just trying to like set them up with like, like as much structure as possible. And then we can loosen it up a little bit. Sure. That, that's something that I yeah. encountered the other day. Um, sometimes when you bring up a subject with small children um, or they bring it up, you very quickly get into waters where you're like me explaining my point of view is going to be so inappropriate for you. Yeah. Like my son came to me the other day. He goes, daddy, I love Evie. Evie's his sister. And he's like, I love, I love her. I was like, so do I. He goes, I love her the way you love mommy. I was like, okay, we're well, done with this. He goes, I want to marry her when I get older because I love her and because you love mommy. I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> but me explaining why brothers and sisters can't marry because of incest and all the whole genetic thing, like we are way in the woods. So I'm just like, you can't. Like, yeah, that's can't. Funny. I'm sorry. I love you. Yeah. You love each other. I love mommy. And you, that's, yeah. you, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like that overcorrection that you mentioned a few times, Will, is is we fear maybe that if we don't expose them to these different ways of being, if we want to call it that, they may grow up to to be judgmental or even bigoted towards these people. How did any of us make it all of those years without explicit education in what it means to be in a homosexual relationship, to engage romantically and sexually uh, in, in the ways that homosexual couples do? I mean, all of us made it without any mention of those things when I was in school. I, I don't have any problem with the the manner in which homosexuals get married or have sex. So I, I don't understand um, the, the obsession with making sure kids know every single aspect of what it means to be trans or homosexual or what have yeah, you. You'll figure it out. Like I've had like, <laughs> I think nine different trans people in my podcast. Cause it's one of those ones that's obviously a big culture war and very sure. diverse people, you know, blue haired trans activists and then like MAGA hat where I had a trans person, <laughs> Luca Eichladin on who was, uh, he went to, uh, he was like there on January 6th and stuff like that. Like, oh, wow. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, really interesting. Yeah. So you, people you exist. This, you're, you're friends with Buck, aren't you? Buck Angel. Buck Angel yeah. 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 Dude, he, they, that, they must be awesome. very polarizing. He must be super polarizing when you, yeah. people have conversations. Yes. Like, I, I, I love when he talks. He's, he's awesome. And, that's the thing is like you don't need he didn't need to be like indoctrinated into this like right it was it was like resisted resisted and I was like no this is just this is who i am this is how i have to present myself otherwise i'm gonna be super miserable and yeah. th those people exist you know you don't need to to push them into that stuff they need some structure i have a friend who's gay and um when he was a kid he put on a dress because it's i don't know I'm not gay, but like, I'm sure it's like, well, I'm not like these kids. There's something up right. with me. You have more feminine right. tendencies or something. So he put on a dress and his parents were like, no, no, no. Like, you know, dresses are for girls, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he's like, but looking back, whether or not that was like, right or whatever, but like looking back, he's like, thank God that happened because I'm not trans. But if they were like, yeah, you want to wear a dress, wear a dress. You want to be a girl, be a girl. He's like, I might've. And I had Chloe um, Cole on my podcast too. who's like a detransitioner and. Yeah. That was a really, that was a heartbreaking story because this idea, it's like very like Rousseauian, right? Like, oh, whatever mm -hmm. the kid wants, that's, that's correct. It's like, yeah. 
No, it's not. No, yeah. no. Kids have not no idea what they want or need. Yeah. It's insane. Like, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Will, does any of this uh, kind of make you nervous about your own young kids being in school? Yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably homeschool them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're in school now because, like, yeah. I don't want to, I don't have the patience to teach them how to, like, read and do, like, math and, like, like simple, like, multiplication. But, yeah. uh, we'll probably pull them out. Like my wife was, she's like an entrepreneur. She's like an immigrant. She didn't go to college or anything like that. And she's really successful and mm-hmm. does great. Like I grinded through school, I guess to some degree, like I eked out like a 3.0, but I didn't like school. Like I don't, the old stigma of homeschool kids are weirdos was because of like, they weren't socialized, but my kids are doing, they do jujitsu. They do singing lessons. They do like plays. They do basketball. Like they're, they have like a lot of friend groups outside of school. Right. So I don't, I don't know. Like now when you talk to homeschool, like parents and kids, they're actually like the most normal ones. A thousand percent. Yeah. The conversation you got with them. Go ahead, Adam. I was just saying that stigma of like homeschool is weirdo. It's definitely going away. Like they live on a farm and they don't have a TV and they do home. (laughs) They do school with mom. That's weird. They're weird. And we never see them. And then all of a sudden they're at graduation, you know, because that's the only place where they can get a diploma. Yeah. 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 Well, as we uh, as we wrap up here, where can we find you? What have you been up to that you're excited about that you would want to announce? Oh, yeah. So. Thank you so much. So yeah, I mean, I, my Instagram is is still like my main like social media platform, how I connect with people and share my ideas and stuff like that. But uh, this summer, I'm going to be taking my US history class and my civics class, and I'm going to be putting it you know, online for people who are homeschooling and stuff like that. So like, it's kind of just like proof of concept, like kind of what my, my Instagram of like kind of the way that I, that I work and the way I kind of address things. But then I'm going to have like, you know, history lessons like the Civil War and the War of 1812 and blah, 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 blah. you know, civil rights movement, all this stuff through this kind of lens. I'm going to try and make that available. Um, and a way to, to like be, you know, up to date on that stuff is I made my first kind of, again, like downloadable. Like I was just on social media. I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't pitching anything. I was just kind of doing proof of concept for five years. And now I have, uh, it's like a downloadable thing. It's called debate to dialogue. It's a, uh, a, a, a guide on having productive conversations over politics and religion. You mentioned Peter Bogosian. Did you read um, How to Have Impossible Conversations? I've read it twice. It's so it's good. so good. Yeah. It's so, so good. It's inspired by that a lot. That Righteous Mind, Scout Mindset, you know, like like those kinds of like books. Um, and uh, and it's just like how to, it's like 10 tips, I think like 10 or something, tips on like how to heal those relationships. Because I had you know, broken relationships with like, um, family members and friends. I have friends who like stopped talking to their dad for three years. Cause he posted like how George Floyd was a criminal or something like that. And I was like, Oh man, oh. like that's really terrible. Like you're losing these relationships over pe- with people. So if you want to have a more productive conversation, um, it's all of the stuff that you guys are probably privy to, you know, about like finding shared values and steel man and blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, yeah. but it's a, a nice, like kind of guide and I kind of walk you through it and it's free. But that'll also get you into like uh, my email base so I can get you up to date on the curriculum. So it's just cylinderradio.com slash debate to dialogue. Beautiful. You can download it and then um, you'll get um, all the stuff. I'm going to be releasing one um, soon about how you can use social media to make yourself smarter, better, stronger. Um, That's going to be a great one. I'm excited for that. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. So I really appreciate, you know, anyone who's listening to, to kind of check that out. It's all, it's all free. I mean, the curriculum I'll probably have to charge for at some point. Cause I'm going to structure a whole like kind of thing around school with it, but, sure. um, 
but everything's just like, I'm trying to scale good education. That was my agenda from the, from the beginning is trying to get people to be more critical thinking and, yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm finally moving into it. It sounds like you're well on your way because we all appreciate what you do. And we wish that uh, you were a teacher to all of the kids that we work with. So thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. That's very, very kind. I really enjoyed this conversation. This is, this was Thank fun. you. Thank you. We did too. Yeah. <laughs>